what we're going to what we're going to be doing um, this today, this morning. Last week we looked at more of the overall comprehensive things, and I wanted you to begin to see how Paul was at work here, doing the things he was doing, trying to lay out the conclusion and kind of the big picture of what was happening there. This week I want to zero in a little more acutely into what Paul is saying to us here and how this is of great help to us, both individually and corporately, and how it engages us as we reach out into the culture that God has called us to. So let's hear what God's Word says to us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication or petition. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. I want you to think about this. I don't know if you've ever heard this in your life, but I certainly have from time to time. I've had various relatives who, who do not know the Lord Jesus or, and would say that they did not, um, have said that the reason why I or other people... Um, find Christianity helpful or like Christianity or like religion in general is because we feel weak. And so we need a crutch. We need something to lean on. And, and what I want to contend with you this morning is, is that I don't need a crutch. What I need is a comprehensive overhaul. Um, I, I think that's almost an insult to what Christianity declares about us. Christianity says we are so profoundly destitute. What could a crutch possibly do? That's an, you know, when people use crutches, I don't know if you've ever been on crutches. I have before. Um, crutches really require a lot of strength. And in fact, if you never had pectoral muscles and you really want to develop some, Twist your ankle and get on crutches for a couple of months, and I assure you, you your pecs will start to really stand out if you're a guy. I mean, because it takes a lot of upper body strength to haul yourself around. So when we say Christianity is a crutch, it's really almost an insult. That somehow we have strength within ourselves, and if we just have two pieces of sticks that 66 books are telling us about, we can crutch our way around and get about. In fact, Christianity is suggesting, as I've just said, something profoundly different. It is suggesting that you're not just sick and can't get up. It's saying you're dead, and without Jesus, you have no life. Now, what Paul's drawing us to here, and what I want you to see here, what's happening in this particular passage, 
is that Paul's trying to get us to understand this because we have some faulty ways of thinking, which I'm going to address in just a minute because the devil goes after those faulty ways of thinking. He, he uses those, both to cloud those who don't see God for who he really is and to throw those who do know him off course. Because what we tend to do is sometimes is to think that once we've got Jesus, we now got to get busy and live our lives. And we tend to get into this whole notion of how we think about how we're doing affecting how God's feeling. And if you haven't heard anything else in this service, I hope you've begun to hear God's love is unchanging. You can't change God's love. Now, if you can't change someone's love, what does that mean? Then how God loves you can't be changed by what you do. And see, so we have to ask ourselves, why is that? I mean, it's, it's the whole heart of the gospel, right? It's not because God just winks his eye and says, it's okay, you know, yeah, you did some bad things, no big deal. No, he says it's so profoundly horrible that none of you could save yourselves. It's so profoundly horrible, I had to send my own son to save you. That's how terrible you are. It took someone divine to become a human being to deliver you. Now that's what we begin to see that Paul's trying to say, and he's trying to say to us that it's not only that you needed Jesus to save you, but you can't walk as a Christian without the clothing of Christ, the gospel, all over you. And if you want to just look at the, at the armor that's being laid out here, it's really this. It's the gospel. It's various facets of the gospel. Now most of you ladies in this room, I imagine, like diamonds at least a little bit, either up close or from a distance, but you like them. And I want you to think about the gospel being like a diamond. The gospel has many facets, just like a diamond does. You can't just say, what's well, this facet? That's the facet. It's, it's the whole package. It's that whole diamond with all its facets that make it so beautiful. So that all angles, when light hits it, it shines and, and draws attention to it. That's why Paul is laying out the, the armor in the way he does. All these different things, if you start to look at them, you think, well, what does the gospel bring? Well, it brings righteousness. It brings truth. It brings um, the idea of peace. It brings peace to us. It's a sword to defend us and to attack with. The irony is the attacking of the gospel is always to do people good. It's to do them good, even in the face of their wickedness, their hate. It's to lay down your life. But I get ahead of myself, and so I want to look at the first point. We've got three points. We have the attacks against the gospel. We have the armor of the gospel. And we have the actions from the gospel, and we're going to look at those. Now, here's what I want you to begin to see in the attacks against the gospel. I want you to look at what it says here. It says, put on the whole armor in verse 11 of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, we're, our real issue is not with other human beings, not flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
And so then Paul tells us to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, then to stand. Later on he tells us that the devil throws um, flaming darts or shoots flaming darts at us. All these different things are bringing us to this point that the devil schemes and attacks us. And what we need to be wise to is how the devil's working. I mean, there's one thing to put on armor. It's another thing to understand how that armor is working, what it's doing. So we need to understand how the attacks work. Well, one of the ways that the devil loves to attack us is to use the wisdom of this world. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you know, you could come up with all kinds of ways that wisdom is displayed in this world, but there are some more obvious ones. Um, Beauty is the most important thing. Strength is the most important thing. The one who has the most money and the most power is the most important. And let me ask you a question. Everything I've just said, as you go out into your day-to-day life, how many of you have found, you can raise your hands on this so you can look around, how many of you have found that what I've just said, oftentimes that's what wins the day in our world? Beauty, power, wealth. So you need to understand that the devil is scheming, saying, He's laying out these systems behind the world we live in. He's scheming. He's attacking. He's trying to get you to question what? The same thing he tried to get Eve to question. God's not really good. Because if God was good, you'd be pretty. If God was good, when you worked hard, you'd make more money. If God was good, you wouldn't lose your job in the face of economic difficulties. If God was good, your children would obey. If God was good, other people would listen to what you had to say and esteem you and value you. If God was good, you you see, you get where I'm going. You understand what the devil's up to. That's his scheme. Doubt God's goodness. So he uses the wisdom of this world to draw us in to suck us in to where we start to be people who are afraid. You see, as soon as Satan can get you to start thinking God's not good, all of a sudden your religiosity takes over and you start to think, but I'm bad and God's more powerful than me and that means he's going to get me. And how do I really know that all my sins are really covered? And how do I know that's not a big fat lie? And how do I, you see, so now all of a sudden doubt creeps in. And now all of a sudden I start looking at other Christian people and self-righteousness begins to well up within me and I start to look and say, well, they don't really care about me. They don't really love me. Or how could they possibly help me? Look at what they do. And do you realize the tyranny that Satan brings even Christians into? Another way that Satan attacks people is through the pursuit of pleasure or hedonism. This idea that basically if I continue to have fun and joy and excitement going all around me, I never have to stop to think very long about how really horrible I truly and empty I feel inside. I mean, men and women, this is why more and more people keep some kind of racket going on all the time. Now, I like personally to listen to certain kinds of music, so you know, I have to be careful about this, and I don't want us to start being legalists saying, it's got to be death quiet, so you can really think. But I do want you to think about this. How many of you have ever gone on a camping trip 
and found yourself profoundly overwhelmed with something about yourself, that you were discouraged, and when you came back from it, you found yourself being discouraged, or you found yourself just being overwhelmed, that you know you went, you had this great time, you saw this beautiful, you never could explain it. And I want to contend with you that sometimes the reason why that is is because you get quiet. You get out of the, all the hustle and bustle, the, the, all the things you're doing, all of a sudden you're exposed. It could happen to you when you're on a, a trip and you're not in all your normal circumstances. My wife's not here this morning, so I guess it'll be safe to tell this. I don't know if she'll listen to the podcast later, but some of Jane and my worst fights, not arguments, no, no, worst fights, knock down, drag out, angry, I don't know how this marriage will ever last, kind of, and believe it or not, men and women, most marriages have those from time to time. Hopefully they decrease as you go longer in your marriage, but they do happen. We're after camping trips. <laughs> That's the way I started realizing what was happening here is, is that Jane and I were getting away from all, from school, because we were both in college, we got away from school, we got away from all the regular things we did, and we'd go out and we'd have these great hikes, and we'd set up this tent together, we'd do all these things together, we'd cook together, we'd hike together, we'd go swimming together, we'd do all these things together, have all these great pictures from these beautiful, magnificent places we'd gone to see, and on the drive home, where did they come from? And what we began to realize that was going on here is that lots of times we tend to do things and try to live our lives in a way that blocks out, it suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. We kind of live, for those of you that are old enough to have seen Gone with the Wind when it used to come on every, every year on TV, you remember Scarlett's great quote, right? I'll think about that tomorrow. And see, that's how a lot of us want to deal with sin or with issues that are happening in our lives. I'll, I'll think about that tomorrow. Today I've got to think of happy thoughts. Today we've got to play the glad game. But the reality is, is that Satan is thrilled for you to suppress the realities that are going on around you. Another thing that we tend to do is we tend to exalt ourselves. We tend to want to say, I'm really not that bad. Things aren't really that difficult. And Satan is more than happy to flood you with that. See, sometimes, men and women, we need to understand that if you're pretty and you're athletic and you're advancing in life, sometimes that's the worst thing that can happen to you. Because you begin to believe your own press reports you begin to think, I really am all that in a bag of chips. And as a result, you tend to once again, because of that, because you're so busy glorifying yourself, you don't realize how really dastardly you are. And it's very easy to get yourself into, and Satan is perfectly happy to help encourage you towards this type of thinking where you're looking at, at other people and thinking, well, if they just work harder. You know, if they would do this, that, or the other, we, we stop realizing that, you know what, men and women, and just this is maybe a comfort to some of you ladies in this room, you do realize several hundred years ago that all these skinny rails that guys basically ooh and ah and salivate over now, 
would have been thought to be sickly. I mean, who would marry a woman like that? She'd probably die after two children. <laughs> She's unhealthy. She's gangly. And, and the point I'm trying to make is, is your intelligence. I remember hearing Tim Keller one time talk about this, saying that people who are gifted mathematically and technologically these days, you by God's grace were born into a particular time where that matters. Five or six hundred years ago, who cares about computers? Can you swing an axe, brother? Can you plow a straight line? Can you at least go keep the wheat seeds dry? See, sometimes we tend to become so full of ourselves and Satan is more than happy to exalt us with the wisdom of his world that if you know this, that means you're better. That means you're special. That means you're significant. And I want you to see that all of those things are the attacks of the evil one on human beings. To either keep them from coming to God or to keep them enslaved to their sins so that they will not grow in their faith in God. See, if Satan can't keep God from saving you, but he's going to do everything he can to stifle you and to slow you down and to hinder you from doing anything good for the kingdom. Now the good news for us, as I told you last week, is Satan's goal is to thwart God and he can't thwart God. So that's good news for us, but it's not an excuse to say, well, since Satan can't thwart God, I'll just kick back and throw up my feet. No, see, Paul won't let you take that attitude. He says, no, put on the armor. This isn't, this isn't a country club, sit back and just kick your feet up. This is time to recognize you have now become a person who realizes there is a war going on around us. I really do love the movie The Matrix for what it did in trying to help us understand this. Because for those of you that have seen The Matrix, you know what's going on there. I mean, the computers have taken over the world. They've hooked up all the human beings. They're using them like batteries. And so the human beings believe that the world they see in their, in their minds, this world that the machines are running them through, this dream world where they get up, they eat food, they do all the things that we normally do, is actually, it's all an illusion. It's all part of this matrix that's been created. The reality is is that the human beings that aren't hooked up are in a war against the machines who have taken over planet Earth. It is a war zone. And it's going on all around these battery human beings. And when they get woken up, they all of a sudden realize, we're in a war zone. I mean, I just came from this great reality where there are beautiful people and beautiful places and everything's awesome and wonderful and incredible to a war zone where everything, for the most part, is black, except for when things are blowing up. And there's a sense in which, men and women, we need to understand that Christianity really is a sobering of us to recognize that when we really start to understand what's going on here, there's a lot of dastardly, dirty stuff going on. The other thing I like about, about that particular movie is is that in the midst of the war, love, loyalty, friendship, concern, strength of character, 
all begin to show themselves in that movie. So even though the circumstances look very ugly, we see community being formed. We see people drawing ranks together, unifying around a common purpose and a common cause and a common mission. And those things are beautiful. And so if we begin to see how the devil is at work, we begin to understand our own circumstances better. The last thing I want to leave you with, and I want to, I've, I've saved this for last in the attacks of the devil, and I want you to understand this is this. The devil's greatest weapon against the church is legalism. It's his greatest weapon. It is the greatest attack against the gospel there can be. If you just obeyed more, God would love you more. If you just do enough things right, God will save you. And do you understand what that ultimately drives people into? It drives them into guilt when they don't succeed. Self-condemnation because they know who they really are and say, well, if I'm like this, who could possibly love this person? Who could possibly care about me when I'm able to do that? And it turns you into people who are judgmental and self-righteous. Have, have you ever noticed this, that self-righteous, judgmental people, oftentimes when the closet finally gets opened up, have incredibly wicked things going on in their lives? That's why Jesus could say that hypocrites were like people who were whitewashed tombs. Or the way sometimes ancient medieval writers would talk about hypocrites was they had these gold outer garments that the interior was lead. They were actually weighed down with guilt and condemnation. But they looked really beautiful on the outside, these beautiful gold robes. Legalism, guilt, condemnation, self-righteousness are all things which are enemies of the gospel. And Satan loves to get people wrapped around the axle about thinking that I'm living the Christian life better than those people. We're the church that really is serious about the word of God. Satan loves to make us those kind of people. Because see what he does is, if this little church over here thinks it's better than this church over here and this church over here, and this big church looks at that small church and says, well, that small church must not really love Jesus because if they love Jesus, they'd be bigger. And the small church says, well, the reason why we're not bigger is because we really love Jesus, and you don't. You're a bunch of sellouts. <laughs> and then everybody looks at the middle-sized churches and says, I wish they'd make up their mind whether they really wanted to be serious about Jesus or not. <laughs> And it's that type of stuff that Satan uses to destroy us, to undermine us, to kill us. And so that's why we need to see then, if that's the scenario we're in, how amazing the armor of God is. So let's take a look then at, at the armor of the gospel. The first thing that Paul tells us to put on as we look at the armor here is he says, Having fastened on the belt of truth. The first thing I want you to understand about the gospel is the gospel is truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. And the gospel is what? About Jesus. That is the gospel. A lot of times people get confused about this. They think the gospel is everything in the New Testament. No, 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 no. 
The gospel is specifically about the person and work of Jesus. That's the gospel. There's the fruit of the gospel, which is hopefully our living out Christian lives, our doing things we're supposed to do. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not what I do. The gospel is what Jesus did. The gospel is who Jesus is. The fruit of the gospel is who I am in Christ. We need to keep those things distinct. Linked, but distinct. The gospel is everything we can talk about Jesus. So when we talk about the belt of truth, you've got to think about this, men and women, when you talk about belts, we tend to think about belts, and guys understand this. Belts are things that hold up our pants, right? You know, we, we put a belt on. Now, I realize in our culture, sometimes belts are, are something that doesn't really hold up your pants except to kind of keep it from completely falling down your legs because you don't even put it up on your waist. But, but, but I do want to understand that even in there, the belt has some level of function. But the idea of the belt is more the idea of being something that supports. It's, it's girding yourself up. It's this idea of it, it basically helps hold all your innards together. And you know when we are competing athletically and those kind of things, you need support. You need things to help you to be able to go out and compete. In battle especially, men would wrap themselves around with cloth and things like that really tight. So that even if a sword pierced them, their guts wouldn't fall out. There it is. It's kind of graphic, but that's the truth. <laughs> In Vietnam, I'm told that the Viet Cong would raid various um, uh, mash units and things like that to get medical tape because they would tape their whole bodies up so that if they got shot, again, same idea. You couldn't, you couldn't rip them apart. They, they would basically tape themselves and become suicide gunners. So we understand that within war, there's this sense of you need to be girded up. And I want you to think about this. How many times do we go into circumstances and we find, and oftentimes the Bible talks about our kidneys or our bowels or those kind of things being the place where our emotions lie. How many times do we find ourselves being emotionally distraught by things that people say or do to us? It overwhelms us. And you see what Paul's trying to say is, you need to put on the belt of truth. You need to remember the truth. The truth is who you are in Christ. All that Christ has done for you. You really are forgiven. There really is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There really is true forgiveness of sins. You really have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You've got to wrap yourself tightly with this truth like a belt, like a girdle for you ladies, because sometimes they talked about a girdle. And what's a girdle's purpose? To hold you all together. I want you to think about that. That's what it needs to be. It's something that's on you. It's tight. It almost becomes your own skin. You've got to become people so that your emotions don't get away from you. So that you're not living on this roller coaster emotionally of what's happening around you. And men and women, there's not a person in this room that hasn't experienced exactly what I'm talking about. It doesn't seem anybody cares. It doesn't even seem that God cares. Because if God cared, He'd give me people around me that cared. 
And see, ultimately, we, we need to understand this. Let me just say this as we're looking at how the armor works. Men and women, please at some point become savvy enough in your, in your life, become thoughtful enough in your life to realize that when you're mad at other people, at the end of the day, the person you're really mad at is God. That's who you're really mad at. Especially for Presbyterians, we really struggle with this because we're some of the most ticked off people in the world, but we cloud it in our self-righteous attitudes because we've got good theology. And we do have good theology. The problem is oftentimes our good theology doesn't do us any good. Which is tragic. I want you to understand you have to become people who gird yourself up with truth, which means you need to be telling you the gospel all the time. You need to be saying the gospel to yourself all the time. You need to be telling other people the gospel all the time. You know Jesus loves you. You know your righteousness in Christ. You know your significance is found not in what you do and not in how you operate, not in how you perform. It's in Jesus. Because men and women, all of our tendencies is to forget that or to deny that or to suppress that. And Satan is striving to bring that against us. So it's not something that you can just take trivially. So gird it up with truth. The idea then is the breastplate of righteousness. Now some have tried to take this passage and this particular thing and said the breastplate of righteousness is what we do, our good deeds, that basically we're to live out in such a way that we're covered front and back with righteousness that, that flows from what God has done for us. But men and women, we know all through the scriptures that the righteousness we need is not a righteousness we can give ourselves, not even after being saved. Isaiah begins saying that our good deeds are as filthy rags, and even after God has come and redeemed people, he says, your good deeds are still as filthy rags. So while we've changed in our standing with God, we in and of ourselves can't do good apart from God. And so the righteousness that's being discussed here, and I'm, I'm not going to go to these passages, but I am going to tell you them, and you can go and read them yourself. Isaiah 11.5 talks about Jesus girding himself up with righteousness. It talks about in Isaiah 59.17 that God himself put on the breastplate of righteousness. This armor is God's armor so that when we put it on, we're actually putting on what God has put on. Well, if God puts on righteousness, it's his righteousness. And if we put on his armor, whose armor, whose righteousness are we putting on? The righteousness of God, which is found in the person and work of Jesus in the gospel. And why is that important? The important thing about having the breastplate of righteousness is this. Where we think, the Bible talks about the heart being where all of our cognition is done. It's not so much our emotions as it is our cognition, the way we think, the way we believe, what we truly hold on to, what our passions are, our affections. That all resides in the heart. And what that needs to be covered in is the righteousness of Christ. Because what happens when you feel like what you've been passionately driven towards is not going where you thought it would go? What happens when you start to doubt or be afraid? Most often it tends to root itself in our performance. I'm not performing up to par. That's why these bad things are happening. If I could just be more righteous, God would shine on me more profoundly. 
And see, what the breastplate of righteousness is telling us is if you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, can you be more righteous than Jesus? Is it possible to have more righteousness than Jesus' righteousness? And if you're covered in that, then it has to begin to have a profound effect on you. Not to say it's okay to go out and do wrong things, but to realize that just because I stumble, just because I might fall, doesn't mean I can't get back up. Doesn't mean I can't continue to fight in the battle. I'm not disqualified just because I struggle. The next thing we see there is the gospel of peace. The idea there is, if you remember back in Ephesians earlier, it said that he came and declared peace for Jesus himself is our peace. And what it says is with the readiness of the gospel of peace. And the idea that's going on there that we're putting on, that we're telling ourselves, we're reminding ourselves is this. God cannot be at war with me if I know Jesus. Because he's at peace with Jesus. And if I'm in Jesus, then he's at peace with me. So again, you see how Satan wants to say, well, you see God's out to get you. You see, when discipline comes, that's God just being, he's just still mad at you. Well, that's that's to basically say to your children that every time your parents tell you no or discipline you or, or send you to your room because you've been acting ugly or whatever, that that's really because they hate you. And don't think that Satan doesn't want your children to believe that. And if you ever have one of your children yell out at you that they hate you, don't you believe that? But see, it's just not true. The reality is those whom God loves, He disciplines. He scourges. He doesn't let them just go off willy-nilly. And so we have to come to this place where if we're really at peace with God, then when things happen that are difficult and hard, we understand that those things are for our good, not because God's at war with us, and not because we're still at war with God. We have to constantly remind ourselves of that. We have to constantly tell ourselves these things. The other part of that readiness is, is if we're constantly reminding ourselves of that, then we're able to be people who are ready to share it with others too. The readiness of the gospel of peace. I stand at peace with God. I can hold my head up high. God loves me. I am His child. That's true. The next thing we see then is the shield of faith. And the shield of faith gets at some really heart issues of our justification, our sanctification, our glorification. And those are three big words that I want to just say this. Justification is basically the idea that God, because of what Jesus did, not only takes away my sins, but gives me everything All the things that I am, Christ took at the cross. All the things that He is, He gave me because of His death and resurrection. So if Jesus is perfect, I get that credit. If Jesus is good, that's how God sees me. If Jesus has done all these wonderful miracles for other people, that's all put to my account. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that all the good deeds that Jesus did, that's that's credited to your account? You've healed lepers. You've cared for the poor. You've touched a woman who was hemorrhaging through Christ because that righteousness is credited to your account. That's how God looks at you. Sometimes we don't really think about what that righteousness means, but I want to give you tangibility to that and then see how faith in that truth becomes a shield to you. 
No, I know who I am. I know who I have believed in, and I know what that is. And Satan is going to shoot fiery darts like crazy. You're not good enough. You're not really that nice. You're not really that good a preacher. You're not really that good a minister. You kind of stink as a leader. You see, these are the things that Satan constantly throws at me. And therefore, I know he throws things like that at you in various ways. And see, we have to put up the shield of faith, which says that who I am and what makes me matter is not me. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So that I can't doubt, I can't start to get into this thing that I somehow can save myself. I can't save myself. I also can't continue to walk in righteousness. See, Paul's already told us in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you're saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, so you can't boast. That's your justification issue. Sanctification is Colossians 2, 6. And the way that you believed in Christ Jesus is the way you began in Christ Jesus, which is what? By grace through faith. So walk in Him, rooted and built up. So, see, you can't say, you can't come and say, well, so sanctification is basically dependent upon what I do. No, it's dependent on what Christ has done. How do I walk safely with God throughout all my days? Trusting in what Christ has done for me. Believing that He really has saved me, cared for me, loved me when I was an enemy, which then becomes an impetus for me to go out and love other people. Care about them. Finally, it affects glorification. Because see, we have to have faith in what we cannot see yet. Right? Isn't that what Hebrews 11.1 1 says? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. And if you really were to go back and do word studies and translations, you'd find out what's really going on in 11.1 is this. Faith is the assurance that you're going to get to heaven. Faith is the conviction that even though you can't see heaven, it's really there. Glory is not some empty, vacuous idea. I have hope for what's coming. Helmet of salvation. If you've ever seen Roman helmets or Greek helmets, you know those big plumes, you know it's a lot of pomp and circumstance. I want you to think about this. God gives you a helmet of salvation which gives you, you hold your head up. You don't hang your head, you put that on. You know your head's protected. You know that you can walk now with the surety that God loves you and that He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. That God doesn't do half jobs. He gets the job done. What He starts, He finishes. What He begins, He completes. And what we come to realize as we look through the New Testament is, is that all the promises, all the things that God promised have found their yes and amen in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus says in Revelation, I am the Alpha, the beginning, and the Omega, the end. And do you see how when that helmet of salvation is on us, we are people who believe what God has begun, He will complete. Who I am in Christ cannot be changed. I am a saved person because of what Jesus has done. And finally, there is the sword of the Spirit. If you would, would you turn with me very briefly to 1 Corinthians? I just want to read these verses. I want you to think through everything we've talked about, and then we'll briefly go through the actions from the gospel. I know we're going a little long, men and women, and I just want to say this to you. This is of utter importance. 
if you don't get this right, do you understand if we really are in a battle, if we don't get this right, we're left open to attack. We're left open to be undermined. We're, we're left open to not advance the cause. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. See, that's not just me making this stuff up. Paul's telling you, Jesus is your wisdom. Jesus is your sanctification. Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is your redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then Paul goes on here in chapter 2 to say that he came, and listen to what he says, And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this, we impart in wisdom. It is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age or of the, who are doomed to pass away. You hear how Paul's telling you all that he's talking about in the Ephesians? He's already told the Corinthians. Listen how he keeps going. But we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And who are those who love him? Those whom he first loved. And what I want you to begin to see then, men and women, is, is that sword that we take out is a sword which says, the whole point of the Bible is to declare to us the truth that God has come to redeem sinners. That God loved his enemies while they hated him. That while we were poor and destitute, the wealthy God of the universe came and lived an impoverished life that we might share in the wealth of heaven. As you begin to understand, if you really start to talk that way and think that way and operate that way, mercy and justice roll down. The more we begin to believe it in ourselves, the more we begin to show it at work, at school, in our neighborhoods. Our concern is for those who are down and out. Our concern is for those who maybe need a leg up. See, that doesn't just have to be political rhetoric. The Bible sees that as a reality that goes on when people come to know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They begin to have an impact dramatically in their culture, in their neighborhoods, in their schools, in their cities. Because the only hope is Jesus. And the sword of truth tells us that, and we, we look at that, and we bring it out to bear in our lives and in other people's lives and in the world we go into. The final thing I want us to look at, then, is the actions from the gospel. I don't want to race through this, but, I, but it shouldn't take us that long to look at these points. 
Look at what Paul says here at the end. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel in which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare boldly. Your translations say boldly. The idea there is to speak freely with confidence as I ought to speak. Here's the idea. We're to pray in light of the gospel. We're to pray in light of the gospel. We're to pray all the time without ceasing. First Thessalonians tells us that. Paul's saying here, what I want you to do is praying all the time in every circumstance, on every occasion, pray. Here's some practical ways that looks. How many of us have done this? I've done this. It, it, I, I just try to get out of this habit. Somebody's having a difficult time? I'm going to pray for you. And many of you, bless your hearts, do go home and pray. But what Paul's trying to get across to us is that praying the gospel to one another is a corporate thing we do. It's not just what we do in our prayer closets or by ourselves. It's what we do with one another. If someone's hurting right there, don't say, boy, that's really, I'm really sorry and I'll be praying for you. Be praying for them, but pray for them right there. Put your arm around them. I remember having a conversation with one person that said, you know, we've got these great things called cell phones. There's no excuse when you're talking to someone on a cell phone to not say, let's pray. Right now. You can call somebody up and say, I heard you were hurting. Can I pray for you? It is not that hard for us to be connected. It is not that hard for us to be praying all the time for one another. What is hard is actually being willing to be vulnerable with other people. Which the gospel should set us free to be. What have you got to fear? Why are you afraid? There's nothing to fear if you're in Christ. Praying for the saints. We should pray for one another. We desperately need to be praying. We need to remember that we're praying in the Spirit. That distinguishes our prayers from any other religion, any other group of people who pray. We're not just saying words. We're praying in the Spirit who... Romans 8 tells us it's praying for us and prays for us in ways we do not know how to pray for ourselves. Prayer. It seems like, well, we got to go out there and do something. Absolutely, pray. That person needs to change. Pray. You're not called to be the Holy Spirit. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. Pray that the Holy Spirit would convict and convert and transform. That's what He does. And finally, pray for this pastor and pray for other pastors throughout this city. Because while I certainly am not an apostle, as Paul was, those things that were handed down from the apostles, the truths of the gospel, were handed down to the church and the elders and the, those who preach and teach. And therefore, that message needs to go forward. And ministers, believe this, men and women, are the most attacked people in your church. They're attacked from all angles and all sides because guess what? If you can screw the pastor over and get him thinking all these things, it all goes downhill from there for everybody else. If you can get the elders doubting themselves and not being willing to believe that they really have the ability to lead, if you question and challenge constantly, you ultimately are going to succeed. They're not going to believe in themselves. 
They're going to doubt everything they do and everything they think to the point that nothing gets done. No leadership is available. Pray for your elders. Pray for your ministers. And then pray for everybody else's. Pray, start with the PCA. Start praying for Mark and his session. Start praying for Alan Cooney and his session. Pray for Phil Cruz and his session. Start praying for Phil Henry as he goes to plant this church. And then if you know the pastor down the street in your neighborhood, pray for him. Pray for his leaders. Pray and pray and then pray some more. Until this valley is filled with Christians to where it is unheard of that someone doesn't know Jesus, we got plenty to pray about. And it shouldn't cease. We should flood the throne of grace with our prayers. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. What happens when a bunch of righteous people start praying? If one person's prayers availeth much, what happens when a whole group of people's prayers start going up continuously? If you can write your congressman and get them to change their vote, and they don't even know you, and really they don't care that much. I hate to tell you that, but they don't know you. How can you care about people that much you don't really know? How much more does the God of the universe who made you and saved you and cares for you, how much more when you pray to Him will He not listen from heaven? And that's Paul's whole point. We have a world that needs saving. And one of the most important ways we get busy is to be people of prayer. All the time, in every place, on every occasion, praying. And I pray that God would make that so in the midst of this people here. That we would be people who know and are overwhelmed with the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it would flood out in us to whether God grows us to be a huge group of people or we remain a small group of people, people know that when you go to this church, those are people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and know they're loved and desire to let other people know it and see it and experience it. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.